Thank you for downloading the Friday Night Comedy Podcast from Radio 4. To find out more, visit bbc.co.uk slash radio4. But not until you've enjoyed this week's news quiz. We present the news quiz with your host, Sandy Toxvig. Hello and welcome to the news quiz. We start with a cutting from the Globe and Mail read by Charlotte Green. Hundreds of supporters of the US Federation of the Blind are planning to protest the theatrical release of a film it's deemed offensive to the site challenged. CNIB is not planning any protests around the movie Blindness, spokesperson Kathy Moore said yesterday. In fact, we haven't even seen the film. <laughs> now, thanks to Mike Barker for sending that in. Now, let's meet the teams. Will you welcome first on my right, Francis Ween and Mark Steele. And opposite them on my left, Carrie Quinlan and Jeremy Hardy. Uh, Francis. You know, I can hardly be bothered, but here's the question. Who has been currying favour with the banks? Ah, curry, yes. Yes, do you see what I've done there? Yes, I do. It was an Indian takeaway. It was the cataclysm, Mm. the end of the world. Alistair Darling, on the day of reckoning, realised something had to be done, and he got in touch with the banks. It took a while because he got through to a call centre in Bangalore and um, (laughs) was put in a queue saying, if you want to pay £50 billion to the banks, press one. If you want £500 press two. And that's what he did. And he ordered up an Indian takeaway, got the bankers around to number 11, waggled his eyebrows seductively, um, <laughs> and they gave in. I, I think we should have seen it coming, though, when the Chancellor of the Exchequer can only afford the Grecian 2000 for his eyebrows. <laughs> we know that there's an economic collapse coming. I mean, I really like all those headlines, all the you know, things saying Armageddon, because it's like a disaster movie. I can understand that, Towering Inferno. But then you get to about paragraph five... And he thinks, not the Towering Inferno, it's a special extended edition of Moneybox Live. (laughs) And the eyes glaze over. So I just look at the headlines, really. So I couldn't really tell you what this means, except I think the banks will be given £500 billion of our money, and in return, they're going to lend some of it to us and charge us interest on it. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that, that covers it. Did you see Bush this week when he was asked about the crisis? He said, I wish I could just snap my fingers and make it stop. But, you know, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) He's really getting the hang of it. If they were just left to go the way that the mines and the shipyards and everything else did, why doesn't the government just let that happen? Because the bankers aren't going to complain. You know, you're going to get loads of bankers, like during the miners' strike, outside Goldman Sachs, going, I'll tell you what, there's enough hedge funds in that office to keep three generations in work. (laughs) And big speeches with a bloke going, I stand here, brothers and sisters, as president of the National Union of outrageous bonus receivers and allied parasitic. Right. <laughs> but so if the government are having to borrow money to lend to the banks, where are they borrowing it from? Loan sharks? <laughs> yeah, they phone National Loan Sharks Direct. They've consolidated all government debt into one easily endurable monthly beating. I've <laughs> never seen Gordon Brown so happy, though. He just loves it, because he understands it all, doesn't he? He's just in sort of Asperger's Syndrome heaven, isn't he? Just... <laughs> He's just, he's just so happy. He's just all the figures and everything. It's his favourite stuff. You know, he just gets home and gets naked every night and just gets all the figures out and rubs the papers on himself. For <laughs> <laughs> Francis, those of us who are old enough, it's very 70s, isn't it? Nationalisation, financial crisis. Oh, yeah. I mean, the next thing you know, Mark will be on a three-day week and we'll be recording this on an eight-track, which I... <laughs> Even though it's only part nationalisation, I thought they could have just sent the troops in or something. Dragged out a few bank managers and just tarred them but not feathered them. (laughs) 
send the army in to do the bankers' work if the bankers went on strike. All the armies would have to do the bank's work and have to stand there going, Buy, shell, buy, shell! <laughs> <laughs> wait for it, wait for it! <laughs> and all on the call centres, when you're ringing up, press... Press one! No! Square mile bashing. Yeah. <laughs> I hate the banks. And it's not even for great socio-economic reasons. It's because of the call centres that make you just ring and ring and ring until you go into this absolutely sodden trance where you can't remember your own name. And then at the end of four hours of playing ambient, trancey, bloody or Celine Dion, while all the time assuring you that they are doing all they possibly can to answer your call with the one thing they haven't tried being picking up the phone. That's the one thing they haven't done. Are they sitting there going, we've tried sitting on it and blowing on it and putting a sea lion on it, we've tried everything, actually answering it, and then they have the audacity to say that it's because they really like you. I'd rather they said, we're not answering the phone because we hate your guts. I'd rather that. Because it, it seems to me that the insult of it... Oh, it shut up now! <laughs> Alistair Darling gained the agreement of the UK's banks for his bailout plan by ordering a takeaway curry. And uh, central bankers orchestrated a coordinated interest rate cut. The Federal Reserve, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank all cut their rates by 0.5%. Do you not think Federal Reserve sounds like a dodgy brand of malt whiskey? <laughs> uh, two points to Francis. Mark, have a listen to this. Uh, why indeed, uh, Mark, has uh, Mum gone to Iceland with a shotgun and a wheelbarrow? Uh, I presume this is Iceland, the country we're referring to. We, we are, yes. Um, Iceland is on the edge of going bankrupt, which is... Uh, what a fantastic idea that a whole country can go bankrupt. Lots of planes going over the top now on the way to America. You look down and the whole country will be going, big issue. <laughs> whole country, brilliant. Every Friday, the whole of Iceland going to Norway. Can you lend us half a million quid till me gyro comes? Can I, can I just make a little, <laughs> little historical point, which is that Iceland gained its independence from Denmark in 1944. And... But it was called B-Jam then. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, just over 60 years on their own, look at the mess they've made of it. it... You know, it's all right, because we're getting it back. We're going to buy it back for uh, half a roll mop and a shiny spoon. Well, it's amazing. They've su- amazing they've survived as long as they have. Because the only time I went to Iceland, about nearly 30 years ago, I got to the airport in Reykjavik, about three other journalists, one of whom was Simon Hoggart, in fact, and there was a man waving at us at the airport. And someone said, that looks like Magnus Magnusson. And he came over and he said, hello, I'm Magnus Magnusson. I'm the press officer for the Foreign Affairs Ministry of Iceland. And it was the same Magnus Magnusson, the mastermind one, because it's such a small place. And they thought, he's the only Icelander we would have heard of. So they'd hired him as a press officer for the next two weeks. And the first thing he did was take us off to a bar, and he said, the only thing is that um, beer is outlawed in Iceland for temperance reasons. After the war, they decided it was bad for morale if people went around drinking beer. But they forgot to outlaw spirits. So people just go into bars at the end of the day and order this thing called Black Death. They say, I'll have a double Black Death, please, and then fall off their stools. And, th- and they couldn't think why the country was in well, a Well, that's because bottom. they started, so they had to finish. Hey. The- <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Uh, Iceland is on the verge of national bankruptcy following the spectacular collapse of its three main banks which have been uh, nationalised. The Stock Exchange has suspended trading to prevent panic from spreading. Do you not think living in a country made entirely of ice would be reason enough to panic? But there we are. Um, for many years now, Icelanders have been living beyond their means with some families owning two or more puffins. <laughs> a 
apparently a lot of Icelanders still believe that elves exist. 80% believe in elves. Is it 80%? 20% believe in capitalism. <laughs> uh, two, two points there to Mark. Jeremy, who has thrown his opponents off balance? There's a DVD out called Let's Learn Judo with Vladimir Putin. (laughs) And the Russian uh, Prime Minister, of course, he is trained in unarmed combat. Poison, that's a good one. Um, If that doesn't work, you can shoot them. That's strictly armed combat, but as long as the other person isn't armed, it's all right. And uh, he's he's training the Russian people to do judo. But you've got to love him, haven't you? Well, you've got to, otherwise you're found strangled with your own dental (laughs) face. Um, But it's a weird one, judo, isn't it? Because it's based entirely on the premise that your assailant will be wearing a big dressing gown. I was watching the Olympics, hours and hours of the Olympics, and the moment when I realised I must turn this off and go out and do something, the commentator actually said these words. He went, and you have to say, that is a crucial moment in the history of Algerian judo. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, I'm going to turn this off and go and do something. He does look strange, though, Putin, in that DVD, doesn't he? He's got this sort of black robe on him, and I started thinking about how other politicians have had these sort of strange looks. Do you remember Peter Mandelson's moustache? That was, yes. Alistair Darling's beard? Ruth Kelly? (laughs) That's weird that Mandy's back, though, isn't it? That's so odd that Mandy's back. We didn't talk about it because it was after we'd recorded last week. I think it's just Brown thinking, I'm going to do something that's just really weird to throw everyone (laughs) off. It's just a strange piece of Dadaist performance art. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's just to try and make us think we're back in time. It's 1997, it's a beautiful May morning. Labour's just got in, the horror of the Tories is still fresh in our mind, and Iraq hasn't happened. He's just trying to find the only people in the country more unpopular than him, isn't he? <laughs> they had to rush Manelson into hospital as soon as he rejoined the Cabinet. They had to operate at once, but they got in there, it was a kidney stone, which they it... took out. It's just a typical triumph for medicine that they find the one bit of Manelson that's not malignant. <laughs> <And> it... <laughs> Maybe he could have a DVD called How to Lose a Stone. I think that's... <laughs> It was two points to Jeremy. At a time when the world is in economic meltdown, Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin has released an instructional judo DVD to coincide with his 56th birthday. You do have to worry about the economics of the globe, though, when world leaders are releasing their exercise videos. <laughs> you just think we're in real trouble if that's how you're earning your crust. Some of the stuff, some of the information in it, it says um, his regular judo partner, Shostakov, explains that victory is an integral part of judo. I thought it was an integral part of any sport. Eh? <laughs> Shame no one told Tim Henman. Anyway, um, <laughs> at the end of round one, the scores are Francis and Mark have got four points, but so have Carrie and Jeremy. <laughs> and we start round two with a quote from Healthy and Organic Living. In our August issue, Anthony Worrell Thompson suggested that the weed henbane was great in salads. In fact, henbane is very toxic and is a Schedule 3 poison under the Medicines Act. (laughs) Anthony is very sorry for causing confusion and had quite a different plant in mind. (laughs) And our thanks to David Gardner of Chippenham for that one. Francis, who were said to be more interested in Millionaire's Row than in Penny Lane? Well, the Beatles. Indeed. Um, There's a Cambridge academic 
called, I think, Dr. David Fowler. Indeed. He sounds a bit of a twit, I have to say. He, um, he's written a book <laughs> saying that nobody listened to the Beatles or the Rolling Stones in the 1960s. It's all a myth that, you know, that young people bought their records. I mean, the fact that they were, had all these number ones... Is, apparently, yeah, the only per- person who bought Sgt Pepper was Sir Alec Douglas Hume. I think that's <laughs> the hardest thesis. And Ringo Starr was really captain of the cross at Cheltenham Ladies' College. <laughs> I don't know if this Fowler is 101 years old or if he's some no, he's teenager young. wanting to make his name. But he, he said he was at university in the 80s. Oh, well, there we are. He yeah, was that's young. Jesus. But you just... <laughs> yes, that is young, Carrie. <laughs> just read his job title. It says Cambridge University Historian. You think, ooh, that'll be an expert on popular culture then. <laughs> but wasn't he saying that basically all they wanted, both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, was just to make money? That was the... He said the Beatles were capitalists, and that's not... I mean, they were rich... But they weren't capitalists, they were self-employed, so presumably petty bourgeois, artisans. <laughs> Not strictly capitalists, because otherwise they would have employed other people to be the Beatles and exploited them, extracting their labour. <laughs> I think Paul McCartney did say thing one point, though, I did think, oh, you have completely lost it, when he said, I think it was the war in Iraq when that started, and he said, although I'm a pacifist, I can't be while this war is on. And I thought, well, how can you be, can't be a pacifist between wars? You might as well be a vegetarian between meals. <laughs> <laughs> actually said that they weren't musical pioneers. It, it does say that, yes. yes. He's a moron. I think he's, I think he's professor of made apology at the university of his house. <laughs> uh, I can tell you that a new book claims that the Beatles were not counterculture heroes and musical pioneers, but capitalists who cynically exploited youth culture for commercial gain. The author David Fowler says bands like the Rolling Stones weren't actually interested in engaging with young people. I don't know, Bill Wyman always seemed to enjoy it. Um, <laughs> two points to Francis. Mark, why are you the best a man can get? Oh, men, are, men are never going to get Steve any better Jones. than you. Professor Steve Jones, you do know. Oh, what, we've come to the end of evolution. Hu- human, is... human evolution. We've yeah. come to the end of human evolution. Yeah, Splendid. Two points to Mark. Yes. Carry. <laughs> he says we're, we're perfect and unimprovable, so we won't evolve anymore. He obviously never saw John Prescott in his, his yeah. prime, but he's, he, also, he, he said we have now achieved, we're now living in a utopia. This week, probably not the best time for him to try, try out this theory yeah. on the general public. How can, how can we have finished evolving when men's privates are at kicking height and our knees pack up 30 years before the rest of our body? <laughs> the, the other thing that, that is slowing it down is, is men have a shorter reproductive span. No, don't! That's... I've never heard it called a reproductive that's... span before. <laughs> not what I meant, and you know it. You filthy... Did someone from Radio 2 get in the audience? <laughs> yeah, but you, men, we need sperm. Men start reproducing later and they stop earlier. And so what we really need, because oh, I'm losing the will to live, um, need that's probably how it sperm. happens. We need, we need old men's sperm, so what yeah. we need is more Hello, dirty old dear. men. <laughs> Are you saying that Mick Jagger could advance evolution? Is that what <laughs> Yeah, because more of your things have, have divided, cells are divided, so there's more variations, more mutation, because your sperm cells divide more as you get older, or something like that. <laughs> Let's just accept that creation is true. It would be much easier. <laughs> I've got a friend who's got a brilliant idea for beating creationists, which is if you believe in creationism, your kids don't get to play with dinosaurs. <laughs> See how long that lasts. I had, a brilliant, uh, I had a brilliant discussion once with a taxi driver about evolution. He was a Rastafarian taxi driver, and he said a sentence that did, did floor me. I had no way of coming back on it at all. We got talking about the dinosaurs and stuff, and he said, look in the Bible, there ain't no mention of no rascal stegosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> 
human evolution is grinding to a halt because of a shortage of older fathers in the West, according to the leading genetics expert, Professor Steve Jones, and this despite a brave rearguard action by Des O'Connor. <laughs> we are as intelligent as we're going to be, and I think that's a good reason to stop playing those bloody Sudokus. That's it. <laughs> Two points there to Mark. Carrie, which award has got three scientists glowing with pride? Well, the Nobel Prize yes. for something clever. Best Supporting Actress. But I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's glowing fish. Jellyfish. Have, have won the Nobel Prize. Given that creation <laughs> is true, then God presumably made jellyfish in a mould. Because I've, I've seen the rabbit ones, yeah. so you'd think jellyfish would be the shape of a rabbit, really, wouldn't you? Do you know, some days your medication is less successful. <laughs> These scientists have um, invented glowing fish, or found glowing fish, and that's really helpful for everyone. Well, they can now make glowing anything. You, you can, well, you can uh, now have uh, fluorescent pigs, for example. And I thought, well, isn't that great? Because, you know, every time there's a, there's a blackout, I think, how the hell am I going to find my pig? And, um... <laughs> it's very strange, the whole Nobel Prize, though. It was Alfred Nobel, was it Alfred Nobel? Mm. The inventor of dynamite, and he wanted to atone for the damage he'd done by his terrible work with dynamite. You think it's almost like Dan Brown giving a prize for literature. <laughs> Did you know that Gandhi was nominated five times for a Nobel Prize? In Didn't Nobel? win. No, no, and uh, prompting his infamous rant, no resistance, my arse. Um... <laughs> well, uh, Randy Newman was nominated many more than that times um, for the Oscar for Best Soundtrack and be you know, Best Song at the Oscars. It's so similar to Gandhi, I can't believe well... I haven't... <laughs> Osama Shimomura, I'm going to get... Charlotte. That was almost right. Yeah. Um, Osama Shimomura, Martin Chalfie and Roger Sane have won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> to see that, outsourcing. Um, have won the Nobel Prize for developing a fluorescent protein from jellyfish, which is now widely used in genetic engineering and medical research. Uh, the three scientists will share the £800,000 prize, which has been placed securely in an Icelandic bank. <laughs> the Nobel Prize is awarded for peace, literature, chemistry, medicine and physics, and is decided by the readers of TV Quick. <laughs> I'd love to win a Nobel Prize. Well, that's not going to happen. Now, um... <laughs> so, two points there. <laughs> and I can tell you at the end of round two, Francis and Mark have got eight points, but so have Carrie and Jeremy. Mark, who has had to abandon their carefully laid plans? I'm going to help you here because you're, you're running a bit behind. It? It's an American story about abandoning... Oh, I know. Shush! They're rubbish, that team. It's about, <laughs> it's about abandoning They're rubbish over on that children. team. It's a story about... Oh, are you abandoning... just feeding it to yeah, them? I'm, I'm still not going to get it. You could say it's a story about exactly this, and I'd go, I don't know. It's it a story about young mothers in Nebraska. Am I helping you at all here? Not really. No. <laughs> And this I'm week's sorry. winners... Um... <laughs> They've got a thing in America. There's a law in America where if a child is less than 72 hours old, you can legally abandon them at hospital without any recrimination. But in Nebraska, they've extended it to the age of 19. <laughs> so if you don't like your children, you can legally... We've got a similar thing in this country. It's called boarding school. <laughs> but, um, but in Nebraska, you can leave them at hospital. It was extraordinary. There was one chap who abandoned nine of his ten children. And I can only presume the other one could cook. I have no idea. 
You can't, you can't see people in this country abandoning their kids in British hospitals. I mean, no one could afford the car parking fees. It would be. <laughs> uh, it's a law in Nebraska designed to allow desperate young mothers to abandon their newborn children. It has backfired spectacularly after a number of parents used the legislation to dump their troublesome teenagers. Uh, this is the biggest story featuring Nebraska since... Actually, it's the biggest story featuring <laughs> Nebraska... Uh, two points again to Carrie and Jeremy. Carrie, what new gizmo aims to stop messages sent by bottle? Oh, this is the greatest invention. This is the invention that should have won the Nobel Prize. Mm. Google Mail sat round in their boardroom and said, right, what's the biggest problem with emailing at the moment? And someone said, getting drunk, going home and emailing people. And they've solved it. They've set up a system whereby you get drunk, you get home from the pub, type an email to an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or something that's hugely inappropriate. You hit send and it gives you five simple maths problems. <laughs> and if you can solve them all, it'll send it. And if you take too long or get them wrong, it keeps it for the next morning and says, are you absolutely sure? <laughs> but what if you couldn't do maths in the first place? What if you're just an well, arts... Well, you probably write dreadful emails, so you should be stopped. <laughs> but surely they could do an arts-based question for you. So, oh, it's, are you sure you want to send this? Well, in that case, to what degree can the Second World War be seen as the result of the post-1918 settlement? <laughs> oh, that'd be quite cool, wouldn't it? Yeah. So you spend an hour and a half going, well, of course, Lloyd George, and we're trying to the axis and then we have to understand that there was the sort of growing empire and the decline of profits at the end of the 19th century. Right, I've got all that right. You bastard! <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a sad comment on today's youth that when they get drunk, they can't wait to get home and go online and send emails. Mark and I got drunk in the pub in Brixton once some years ago when we were young. This was before email. We had to make our own fun. <laughs> so we threw... got this pigeon. No, no. <laughs> Better than that. We stood outside the Conservative Club in Brixton. You wouldn't think there was such a place, but it is. <laughs> it has no sign, but we were reliably informed it was the Conservative Club. And we threw stones through the windows. <laughs> next week's news quiz will begin. Well, Jeremy Hardy and Mark Steele cannot be with us for the next <laughs> for the next five years or three years and six months if they're let off for good behaviour. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a fantastic idea, and it's going to help me no end. And I could do with something similar on my phone, a sort of breathalyzer. Yeah, but after the but after they, you, the... you can get mobile phones now with breathalyzers. Can you? Yes, you can. Where? I think. <laughs> Well, I don't know, I had one, but I was drunk. I left it in the pub, so... <laughs> uh, John Perlow, a software developer for Google, has written a programme designed to make you think twice before sending off late-night drunken emails to your boss or, I don't know, people you fancy. Uh, oh, we've all drunkenly done silly things late at night, phoned someone, slept with someone, announced Ruth Kelly's resignation, that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> Jeremy, whose guilt was written all over his neck? Oh, this is awful. This is really sad. The police in Bristol put a car with a hidden camera in it and nice things like it had sat-nav very prominently displayed with a post-it note saying, steal this on it. <laughs> and uh, this lad jimmied open the window and spent ages crawling around in this car. Uh, and he's got his name and date of birth tattooed on his neck, which is fully in view on this camera. I mean, quite stupid. He broke the window, he climbed in, he stole some things, and then he climbed out of the window again. Now... <laughs> 
because he didn't want to leave fingerprints. Not oh. that stupid. And possibly the alarm would have gone off. He'd have opened the door. Well, there, uh, can I just say that there, we have got other tattoo news this week, uh, indeed about a troubled man, uh, the Reverend Dr Peter Mullen. Did anybody see oh, this yeah, story? Oh, yeah, he said that homosexuals should be tattooed on their bottoms. Yes. <laughs> He wanted, he he wanted gay men to be tatted with the warning, sodomy can seriously damage your health. And the amazing thing is that when there was a fuss about this, he expressed astonishment that anyone could think he was slightly anti-gay. Uh, he said, I have nothing against homosexuals. And I thought, he's not going to say it, is he? Yes, he is. Some of my dearest friends... Mm. But then he didn't say some of my dearest friends are gay. He said, some of my dearest friends are of that persuasion. Well, uh, that's how it's done, persuasion. Yeah. It is. It's, it's constantly... Yeah, yeah. You knock on people's doors and offer them a carriage clock theirs to keep... <laughs> Whatever they decide. <laughs> Actually, I like it. He's listed as chaplain to the London Stock Exchange, so... <laughs> At least he knows what it's like to be completely buggered. Um... <laughs> the original story was about Aaron Evans, who broke into a car, was caught after CCTV recorded images of his name and date of birth tattooed on his neck. Mr Evans has been warned his tattoo puts him at risk of identity theft. Uh... <laughs> He's now weighing up whether to have it removed or put his neck in a shredder. I think the silliest thing he did was trying to steal a sat-nav. Those things are useless. He They're was horrible lost. things. They're <laughs> evil, evil, evil. There's this plumber come round my house. Let's say, for argument's sake, I live at 219, right? Then, in this road, it's not a particularly long road. He was in the road and he rang me and, because he, he was looking on his sat-nav, he said, where is 219, mate? And I said, I don't really know how to answer you without sounding really sarcastic, but it's sort of just past 217. <laughs> and then if you get to 221, you've gone too far. You want to sort of look in the middle. And he goes, yeah, but, well, you know, I can't see it. I can't find... And it's because he was a sat and I had to say, they go in order. The, the houses go in order. There's a sequence. It starts with the low numbers, a really low one, one, and then they go in order. And you've got to follow the numbers and you'll find 219. They're not just eagledy-piggledy numbers like the lottery results. Or the bonus garage at the end is 136. <laughs> Just look! He actually said to me, he went, well, I'm at 220 and I can't find it. <laughs> poor bloke. That poor, poor bloke, bloke in the pub that night. <laughs> I was a tiny bit lost. I knocked on somebody's door <laughs> and bloody Mark Steele answered. <laughs> right, before we reveal the final scores, let's hear the cuttings the teams have brought along, Francis. Sandy, this is from the Radio Times. It's an interview with Benedict Allen, who I think is an explorer of some type. And the interviewer says, when you're alone in the world's most inhospitable climbs, how do you keep your pecker up? <laughs> so Benedict Allen says, I make friends with my camels or my dogs <laughs> or whomever I've got around me. Mark. An item in last week's Oban Times, page three, referring to Stormcat's ILA Fishing Festival, wrongly stated that a contestant in the local fishing competition had caught a blue whale. <laughs> I have something from Mick Holt, who sent this in by email, heard on a televised discussion about the dangers of cosmetic surgery. When we first started doing breast implants, we were putting them in left, right and centre. <laughs> Let's take a look at the final score. Francis and Mark have got eight points, but this week's winners are Carrie and Jeremy with 16 points. And before we leave you, here's a story from the Westmoreland Gazette. 
A North American skunk has created a stink after squirting its foul defence spray into the face of a South Lakeland vet. The animal is now being cared for at the Knoxford Wildlife Rescue Trust, where it's been given the name Ducky and introduced to Nancy, a female skunk found wandering outside a gay nightclub in Blackpool. (laughs) And our thanks to everyone for sending that in. With that, goodbye. Taking part in the news quiz were Francis Green, Mark Steele, Harry Quinlan and Jeremy Hardy. In the chair was Sandy Toxford, and the news is read by me, Charlotte Green. The chair's script was written by Simon Littlefield, Rodri Crooks and Stephen Carlin, with additional material by James Sherwood and Rory Stamp. The producer was Victoria Lloyd. To listen again to any of our comedies on Radio 4, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4 slash comedy.